Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on this show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. We have got a great show for you today. In singles, he beat McEnroe, Chang, Angfist, and even Isovich, and got to 19 in the world. In 1996, he semi-finaled the Australian Open and was a formidable member of the 90s Australian men's fraternity that included Pat Cash, Patrick Rafter, and Mark Philippoussis. He is best known for his doubles where he was number one in the world and won 12 majors, most of which with longtime partner Todd Woodbridge. Olympic gold medalist, Davis Cup winner, and Hall of Famer Mark Woodford tells us how John McEnroe was the real genius behind the formation of the Woodies, shares his thoughts on the wide and dynamic field of current Australian players, and explains why his doubles partner through 61 titles will no longer speak with him. We met up with Mark near his home in Rancho Mirage at the Indian Wells Tennis Garden during the BNP Paribas Open. So, uh, first of all, we are under a umbrella next to the Fila and in front of the tennis warehouse tents at uh, the Indian Wells BNP Paribas Open. We're in the, the centerpiece of the merchandise uh, yeah, ground right. here, are, right? We, we are. We are right in the shopping mecca, mecca <laughs> of the <laughs> tennis. My man, Mark Woodford, how are you? I'm, I'm doing well. It's good to see you again. Hey, man, it's great to see you, too. I have got to tell you, I have a distinct memory of eating Japanese food with you. It had to have been Paris in 98. You took me and your junior agent, right. Ross. You knew the spot. Do you, I, was that the time that our trainer, I don't know if you remember our trainer that looked after Todd and myself and a couple of other players, that he thought the wasabi that they had delivered with the food was actually guacamole and he picked it up and threw it down <laughs> and he wanted to like dive into the to the water fountain that they had in the restaurant because he, he was started to like <laughs> he was on fire that's a, that's pretty aussie maneuver right there <laughs> a little green so in order to cover a wide range of topics and subjects we do a five set format this is our first set where we discuss what you've been up to we call it the off the court report so you're now with the ITF? Yes, I'm a board member on the board of directors with the ITF, starting my fourth year. So each term is, is four years, and they created the position to have a past player represented on the board. It was a mix of these other national association leaders, presidents. The ITF is obviously one of the three big organizations, um, and they are in charge of the Grand Slams. They're in charge of Davis Cup, yep. and they're in charge of this ITF transition tour. Is that right? Do well, I have that right? Yeah, you're cl close. So the Grand Slams are actually, they operate independently. So they act independently. They also act as a foursome, a quartet, because that's a very strong power base. The ITF uh, look after the Davis Cup, Fed Cup, and the Olympics, as well as the what is now called the World Tennis Tour, aptly the transition tour. Okay, so what's your job? What do you do? Like, what's an example of something you might do this week? <laughs> this week here, just operating independently. I mean, this is where I live, Indian Wells or yeah, Rancho yeah. Mirage, just down the road. Um, you know, so I'm trying to do some work with the tournament. But, you know, I guess wear a couple of hats and just because Davis Cup is entering into a brand new format this year, as, as well as the transition tour is something new for the younger players 
trying to become full-fledged professionals. So it's just to remind the players about the, the Davis Cup finals, which will happen in November. So you're almost an advocate. I, I am an Agitant advocate. I am an advocate. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You are. I, look, I, I mean, Davis Cup was very important, I, you know, for me, for, for my career, I think for all Australians and any tennis player to be able to say that you have won a Davis Cup competition, uh, the, uh, a trophy, um, I, I think it's, it's like equal to a Grand Slam. It's a, one of the pillars in our sport. You and Todd, you, you guys brought the cup back to Australia after like 13 years. You yes. had a great moment. Yeah, yeah, we did. And, but did you guys play singles? M many times we have played, both of us, yeah. uh, singles and doubles uh, in the one tie. But it didn't happen where we both played singles in the one tie and then played doubles because that means our team would have been just two. I mean, we came up in an era where there was Rafter and, and Philippousis yeah. and Leighton Hewitt, Jason Stoltenberg, yeah. Sam and Stoltenberg. So we- You had groups. We had groups. So there was a time where I played singles and the doubles. Todd wasn't necessarily selected for the singles and, and vice versa. You, you, you spilled the beans when we said hi to each other the other day that you have become to some degree, you've got some static. So why is all Australians so angry? Yes, yeah. Well, Davis Cup in Australia is uh, tennis. Is It's as big as it gets. It's as big as it gets. A team sport competition, and Australia has won the Davis Cup and Fed Cup competition numerous times. I think they've won 25 or 26 okay. times, so it's like puts them in second in, in the... US and Australia right, the most. Right, yeah. Um, but a lot of the older generation, so from my generation, and older, yeah. Ken Rosewall, Rod Laver, Roy Emerson, and John Marissa. Newcomb, Tony Roach. Yep, and so on. They remember Davis Cup as a five-set format, three days of competition, four singles and a doubles. At home, home that's the and big away, home and away format was was huge uh, to have that crowd support. The Davis Cup competition was was dying. It was suffering, and it's not because of what Australia wasn't doing. Australia does Davis Cup extremely well. If every country could follow, have that support, we wouldn't be having to change Davis Cup competition. So this is a matter of keeping Davis Cup alive on the tennis circuit. So some bold changes, which some of the older Australians don't support because it's actually streamlined the, instead of three days, it's two days. Well, I was talking to Marty Fish, okay? And I brought it up that this sounds like it's gonna be like a two-week festival of men's tennis. It's gonna be bananas. Good description, healthy description. It's gonna be, you know, the finals is, is uh, at the moment in Madrid. Um, 18 nations uh, will, will be there. It is just going to be a hub of activity to still vie for this I mean, fantastic trophy. I mean, you've seen the Davis Cup trophy. Yeah. I mean, it is one of the like greatest it. trophies yeah. in tennis. It's a great trophy. Yeah. And what do you say to the people that are upset? Basically, just that it was dying. Yes. Uh, you know, to, to my fellow Australians, when they're open to taking on board the information, do you want an international competition? Do you want Davis Cup to be still on the calendar? The answer is yes. Well, then for the other countries to actually uh, support it and uh, for it to be financial, there needed to be changes made to it. And uh, it's now still on the calendar and Australia still has a wonderful chance of actually winning it. So it, it was a matter of either we change and it remains on the calendar or don't change, keep the status quo. 
and maybe in two years' time, it disappears, and what do they play for? Well, by the way, it was dying. I mean, you, you go to a Davis Cup tie in uh, Hilton Head, South Carolina, and there'd be six people there, and there was like some really bad... Well, the US played in Nashville last year against Belgium. Belgium did not have their top player, David Goffin, yeah. turn up. Their highest ranked player was, I believe, 120 in the world. It's world. like Steve Darcis was playing one. R right, so... It, Nobody's going to that. Yeah, once that uh, their top player um, disappeared, it was a bit of a one-way traffic crash victory for, for the US. But, you, you know, if you're trying to enter new markets on the tennis tour, you want the best to be present, and that wasn't happening with Davis Cup. Are you nervous that some of the top players are going to um, not play? The Davis Cup has always been about honour, representing your country. Uh, yes, these players get paid from their national association, but that's the, their only commitment is trying to fit it into the calendar. That still remains the, the case. There are these other events that are financially strong and they pay the players extraordinarily large amounts of money to get their guarantee to play, yeah. or they bring on new events and put ranking points associated with it so that they can build the ranking. Davis Cup is about wearing your country's colors. There's a lot of honor to it. Put the shirt on and let's go. That's it. And we and, and you don't have rankings. Uh, you're not playing to boost your ranking. You're, you're playing to boost your credibility and your profile. Yeah, and you go win the go win the Davis Cup, man. And to win the to win the Davis Cup in a team format because yeah. I mean, how often on the it's tour unique. are we playing individually? Yeah. Um, give me a two minute explanation of the ITF transition tour. It's very confusing. What's going it is, on? It, it ITF is ITF transition. The, the, the transition tour now called the World Tennis Tour. It is about grassroots tennis. So the $15,000 and the $25,000 level tournaments, they fall under the ITF umbrella. The ATP uh, a year ago decided that they were going to take points away, ranking points, for those players down at that level. So what are we talking about? So you're 600 in the world and you're trying to be a pro tennis player. Yep. What happens to that person? At the moment, they have to start off by playing events in their own country to build up um, the opportunity, the base, the experience, in order to go off and play these fifteen and $25,000 events. They receive an ITF ranking, uh, which is not ideal. I get that there's a lot of uh, negative comments surrounding that there are now two rankings in place, but that is simply because the ATP took ranking points away from those low-level tournaments. If they had kept those points in place, we wouldn't be having some of the confusion that is right there at the moment. Man, you know what? We need a whole special episode of this one day. There's a lot of mis or, or, or not, by the well, way. Well, it's exactly. But there is a lot of misinformation out there, Craig. And it and I, I look. I'm I'm on the board with the ITF, but I I'm a member of the ATP tour as well. But there, it seems all too frequent that the finger's being pointed at the ITF for the confusion, and it actually needs to be moved back around to the ATP because they made the decision to say, we're only going to look after 700 players and whatever happens to the rest of you, we don't care. The ITF is trying to create a playground. A feeder. A feeder so that they can continue on to progress through. It's the ITF that have screwed up. I just, I think it's, it's misinformation.
time to pay the bills. We have started a Patreon page, which is really an opportunity to get into the under-review inner circle. You can support the show, and we can offer you cool perks, like access to unheard episodes, Solinko strings, autograph racket magazines, and even hitting sessions at exclusive clubs with some of our previous guests. You can check it out at patreon.com slash underreviewtennis. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash underreviewtennis. Thank you very much. We really, really appreciate it. And let's get back to Mark Woodford. This is our second set. We call this the On the Court Report. I know that you keep your eye on this sport in a significant way. Um, Australian tennis, where's your head at with these guys right now? What are you thinking about? Obviously, Dima Nauer, Kyrgios, mm-hmm. Tomic, mm-hmm. Um, and there's a few others that are actually good players. Jordan uh, Thompson. Jordan Thompson's a good player. Yeah. Um, well, let's start with Demon Hour. Yeah. Do you know him? If he walked past, I'd say hi, shake hands, say, hey, you don't. I've watched him play several times, not a whole lot yet. I have a feeling that I'm going to be watching a whole lot more of him in he's years a good to player, come. Huh? Solid player. But, but you know, with Alex, he's got one of the best mentors in world tennis right now, Leighton Hewitt, a great champion. And there is such a, a similarity between the two, the way that they play in their build. Um, uh, I, and their professionalism. I, I think Alex is a, is a wonderful talent. I'm not sure just yet whether he will, he will reach perhaps that same height or level as his mentor, Leighton Hewitt. Yeah. But he's going to give his best effort, let me tell Leighton you. He Hewitt won Wimbledon. Leighton Hewitt was number one in the no, world. Yeah, yeah, for many <sighs> years. Amazing. Right, yep. Leighton Hewitt, man, had some career, and the guy's still playing. Well, now, what's the matter with him? He's still playing tennis. He... <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he can't get it out of his system. Yeah, what's wrong with him? He you just know, can still play well, and well, he just you know, it's, it's like two sides of it. I think there are people that say, "Is he crazy?" But you flip it around, there's his passion and love for the sport. It's it's just Lady in Hewitt. his system, and I think it, it, look, there, there's got to be a lot of other countries around the world that would would wish and hope that they had someone like Leighton Hewitt who is embracing our tennis fraternity right now and trying to push them in a very healthy and strong uh, direction. And, and Bernie Tomic is just dead weight, dead wood. He's a little lost at the moment. I just... Uh, Do you know him? I, kind of, yes. I, I would like to know him more to, to you know, offer you know, guidance. I think there's a few of us that are from my time that would you, you know, just, wow, what, what's going on? Because um, he's what a talented player? Talented as, talented as. But you know, I think he's committed committed to his to his own level. Finds a comfort zone and he's happy with that. Now yeah. is that success? We, we come from a country in Australia that you strive to, you know, to be, be number one the best you can. Uh, I, so I, I don't understand it because that was for me, every day was 100%. I think sometimes I look at Tomic and sometimes I look at Kyrgios, they're not necessarily giving 100%. Maybe they think they are in their own way, but you see some of the results. And, and, and even Tomic, uh, won like Seoul, Korea, um, just showed up and like won a tournament. Out, like of, how, out of the blue. And then Kyrgios beats 10 guys, you know, beats, beats five, <laughs> yes. three top tenors last week. Like, can you just explain to our listeners how talented you got to be to show up 
and win a tennis tournament. <laughs> like, I mean, it's unbelievable what they did. Uh, even like a Tomich, like the fact that he could win an ATP tournament is incredible. Well, I, I sometimes wonder, uh, Craig, whether it's, you, you know, the, the catalyst might have been that they were receiving a bit of flack, copping some flack uh, negativity yeah. back home in Australia. And so they had a point to prove. Uh, Tomic, as you, as you said, kind of turned up in Seoul. He didn't have any uh, results to show that he was hitting his best form. But sometimes, you know, the, the, the mental, what happen, is happening in between your ears, you know, you don't have to physically be at your, your peak fitness, but mentally, he had something to prove and wanted to show not just the Australian uh, powers that be, but world tennis that he's still a real player. Yeah, yeah a real player. Same um, can be said with Nick in, in uh, you know, his ranking was nose diving before he went to Acapulco. And look at the look at the players and the form he showed. And I'm going to ask you, is it cultural? Is it is it a cultural that the Aussie press just lights up these guys who have these sort of immigrant backgrounds? I, and the public. I, I think I think they they like to stick the knife in there. Uh, you know, I was only reading last week that um, you, you know Tomic lost here in qualifying, and the the feud that existed at, over the Australian Open time with the two youngsters, Alex Popperin and this Alex Bolt, received wild cards. It was the press. I'd been. I was reading that. Well, there we go. The validation that that Tomic's wrong and that Leighton Hewitt was right. I mean, it's just creating drama that doesn't need to be going on anymore. I mean, just senseless. It, yeah, it's very negative stuff. It must really screw these 22-year-old, 25-year-old kids up too. Right. The, the way the world is right now. Yeah, at social media, they read this uh, and, and Nick, they... We, were, we saw Nick the other night, man. Nick doesn't stop. Looking, he doesn't, he doesn't looking stop. Looking at the phone, yeah. He is addicted to that phone, boy. I go through that with my own kids, my wife and I, we're, you know, we're in that generation where it is now, it's, it's an extension. And, uh, you know, just to remind them over dinner time, you know, you don't have to be looking at it. It's family time Put now. Put your phone down. And, um, uh, you know, obviously Ash Barty, um, you must be very bullish on her. Do you know her? I, I, again, I've traveled with, uh, when I was looking after some Junior Davis Cup uh, and the Junior Fed Cup was played at the same time, she was in the team, got to know, that was when she was 16, obviously she's yeah. a young woman now, yeah. and she had brilliant talent back then. Yeah. Look, I, I mean, she's got such variety, and what a wonderful, warm personality. You are, but you Aussies must love her game, the way the one-handed one back. It's kind of traditional and Australia. Roll, and the roller, yes. and she can volley, and she's a got slush, a... Slush, yeah, a bit of everything. There's variety, and, you know, she's... And she's got a very pleasant uh, demeanor, great we, attitude. We, we say she's a fair dinkum Aussie. What's that true, mean? true blue. She is, that's real Australia. She's not a crocker. She's not a Barry. <laughs> Right? That's you guys right. say Barry Crocker is a real shocker. <laughs> That's it. She's not a... <laughs> she's she, not that. She's very far from a shocker. She is a... I mean, obviously, you have, uh, you know, the champions that are before in, in times or generations. I think she learned a lot from Sam, Sam Stoza, um, and before that was Alicia Mollick. Um, so Ash Barty is... is ho we're hoping to be our next Grand Slam champion on the women's side. It, it, is it cultural as well that there's not been a lot of... Aussie women on tour? Um, like you said, there's been Stozer and now there's yep, Barty. Yep. But generally speaking, it's been pretty... In the, in, the, in the women, I think historically, if you do look back, there hasn't uh, uh, different from the men where they we seem to have had our cycle in packs. There's sure. five or six or seven that have, you know, helped promote each other um, up the rankings. 
it's not the case, quite the case with the women. I mean, you go back to our golden era with Yvonne, Goulagon Corley, Margaret Court, uh, Kerry Reid and Wendy Turnbull. You know, uh, and the latter two weren't quite at that level of right. Margaret and Yvonne. I think with the women, it just, there's not the, the abundance of them. They seem to operate one or two at a time. And, and uh, but I think now at the moment is really, uh, they're, they're profiting by some of that success laid um, down by Mollick and Stoza and now Ash Barty. They, they have tremendous camaraderie and feeling in amongst the women. I think they're outshining the blokes at the moment back home. You feel that? Yes, yes, very positive comments um, about the women. Interesting. Um, let's let's leave that there. I like I like that we talked about Australian tennis with Mark Woodford. Um, you know who who don't we know about? Is there anyone that we should keep on our eye out coming out of Down Under? On on the the men's side, and he's here in the tournament. He's qualified, but we, you know there's been a lot of talk about or focus on obviously Kyrgios and Tomic. They're still young, right? And Alex Demina, a teenager. There is a 17 year old that has uh, qualified. He he. Uh, did well. He got a wild card at the Australian Open and won a match. Uh, he's qualified here. His name's Alex Popperin. Alexi Popperin. It's not Popirin. It's not Popperin. Pop well, you say Popperin in Australia. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, because right. we we no, shorten sure things, right. and yeah, you know, I'm sure there's going to be a nickname, you, you know, coming up with him soon. But he he has the height advantage that Alex Deminar, you, you know, doesn't. He's got a big serve that Alex Deminar is trying to build. He may not move around the court as well as Alex Demina, but he's got a very powerful game. And I just, I, I, you know, he's certainly uh, contrast in, in game and style to Demina, but there hasn't been a lot of airplay about Alex Popperin, but he's one to possibly keep watch on. We saw Popperin and we saw Jordan Thompson in New York at the Nassau Coliseum. Uh, we saw him actually torture Chris Eubanks. <laughs> he just doesn't really miss. Jordy's a... I've got a, a soft spot in my heart for him because he was one of the lads in the Junior Davis Cup team when I was the captain and a wonderful personality. Um, to see him progress through, I think, you know, I give him double thumbs up for that. But his game is, again, different. He's trying to make that transition into the big time level. He's been constantly ranked. Uh, I don't know if he's cracked the top 75, so he's around that threshold. But he's trying to discover how instead of being reactive, to become more proactive. Interestingly, he won his first match here. That's the first time he's ever won a match at a Masters 1000 series tournament. And he's been on the tour now for four or five years. Um, I find that extraordinary. And it also goes to show, you don't have to be in your early 20s to, to be a powerhouse in our sport. Longevity is what I, I love to be able to promote. At 25, 26 years of age now, his best still might be around the corner, but I'd love to see success for Jordy. And, and uh, shout out to Jordan, he's got a great mustache. He's got a very cool mustache. He does mustache. have the mo, he does. <laughs> this is our third set. This is yep. the part of the, the show where we talk about your career. Uh, um, this will be brief. <laughs> I mean, man. Um, where does your tennis story begin? I guess I know you kind of well and don't know you at all. Right. Um, where, did you, where do you start? Uh, in Adelaide, my dad was a tennis coach on the weekends. That was uh, to, to pad some of his income. He, he had a regular job as my mom did, but the weekends was about being down at the tennis club, families, 
club tennis with uh, with everyone, and uh, I, that's when I had my tennis lessons. Um, you know, I wanted to be like my dad. He used to be a pretty good tennis player himself. So you came out of Adelaide. When are you identified as talent? Locally, I was always, I shouldn't say always, but when I first started, I made the final of my first tournament uh, at uh, eight years of age. And well, probably up and through till about 12, 13, I was the best in my age group. And then obviously puberty hits and you know, we grow at different speeds. Um, so I was still amongst the top few but around 14, 15, 16 years of age, I was overlooked. The Australian Institute of Sport was created. I was one of the best juniors in, my, in Adelaide. I was overlooked. I wasn't selected to go to Canberra and be in amongst the elite. That's where the high performance operation the high, is? Yep. And, and, I, they, and they shut you down for that? They, I, wasn't, I wasn't selected, but that didn't end my, my dream of becoming a tennis player. Thankfully, my dad, uh, my, both my parents uh, knew a former tennis player that had traveled on the tour um, in our golden era. Um, uh, and he, you know, he just said, look, so you miss out on, on that area. There is another pathway to becoming, uh, if, you, if your son would like to. Well, who's, who was it? Barry Phillips Moore. Okay. He was my first coach for eight years. He was in that time with Rod Laver, Roy Emerson. Yeah behind them. So he didn't get a lot of kudos at the but he, time. He, he pulled you through. He just said, you know, to my to my mum and dad, Ray and Pat, that, okay, he's not going to the, didn't get selected for the Institute of Sport. I wouldn't send him over to the US and to um, immerse himself in the collegiate system. Send him to Europe. I will coach him with my wife. We have a team, uh, five or six other youngsters that were on the fringe, learn to play on clay and see how he goes. And that, that really was my opening, my, my birth. So you, you got pulled out of school? No, no. That was my, I wanted to leave before my final year of high school. My parents turned around and they said, you know, no. no shot. In, case, in case you don't succeed as a tennis player, which there were no guarantees, I wasn't an academic student at all. But you're a high school graduate. I'm a high school graduate. <laughs> <laughs> but see, in Australia, we didn't, there was no real, collegiate system. You had to travel overseas to the right. US if you wanted to, so, to to follow on in that path. So you finished high school and you where, where, where'd you go? First, I jumped on a plane uh, from Adelaide. My first tournament was in the in Nice on clay. Had never played it before on that surface. I got rolled easy and it was probably, I think for the first four months, I never won a match. Yeah. Uh, just learnt uh, about clay defending. I, I mean, I could attack because I'm Australian and playing on fast surfaces, but I didn't know how to defend and have patience. And uh, um, so that took that took a while. So when do you turn pro? Well, I guess the, f the first year that I went overseas was virtually going pro. You were getting paid. Because I played, I played in money tournaments you were. to subsidize the tour events, weren't winning matches, but you could go to into France, play money tournaments and you know, and even umpire yeah. matches. It was a way of earning money. To string rackets was a way of earning money. You hustled, man. I, look, on the hairs of my my like butt was we, but you know, what was important, Craig, was actually the experience with other, like, teammates. If I was on my own, I don't think I would have, I, I would have drowned and probably not be sitting here talking, looking back, reflect with healthy reflections. It was, it was important that I was experiencing it with mates that we could bounce. 
are off there, of. Are there any names that we may know that were with you? You, you know, no, those, those guys that I traveled with initially are still somewhat involved in tennis, but more of a, at a local they level. They never made in, it. They never, I guess, experienced the, the success that, that, that I maybe tasted in, in my 18 years. When did you crack the top 100? Ooh, that was probably, I was set, I set a goal of four years of playing, transitioning, playing, starting out with satellites and challenges. It was four years to move out of that and try to get into tour events. And I pretty much hit that mark. And another goal was not to come to the US to play on hard courts until I was in the main draw of any tour event that I would enter. So my first ever experience, I believe, at a tour level was uh, in Toronto, North American tournament, um, and then came down to play Cincinnati um, and, and eventually the US Open. So it was about four years of consistently playing in Europe on clay and then obviously going home at the end of the season. Um, How to, old were you? Well, I finished high school, so I was 17, turning 18. And uh, so like 20, 21 was when I made the next step and won my first tour event. Uh, what event was in that? In Auckland, uh, New Zealand. So close to home. Um, had no, no, again, no idea, no real sense that things were going to change my fortunes around by winning that tournament. It was possible to win a match or two. Ended up winning the tournament and, you know, now, um, how old were you when you met John McEnroe? And, and, and how many tournaments did you play together? Not enough. <laughs> Not enough, but enough to learn. <laughs> but hold on, so tell the story. Uh, I played John McEnroe in singles, funnily enough, in Toronto. So I returned to the Canadian Open, played him in the quarterfinals uh, for the first time. So I revered this guy. What year is this? Oh, it would have been about... 88, I think. Yeah. Um, in fact, I was a non-McEnroe supporter. I was a Borg lover. And so I didn't like the antics of McEnroe. We entered the arena to play on center court. He tried to do all of his shtick to unsettle me. I ended up winning the match um, and it was fantastic. I had to play him two weeks later at the US Open on center court. Nothing could change as far as I was concerned. I ended up winning in five sets. Two weeks later, the tour ended up in uh, LA, on the UCLA campus. I went in to sign in for doubles to actually ask the tour manager if someone was available to play. He was on the phone with John McEnroe, who was looking for a partner. So I whispered to him, tell him I'm available. And the tour manager was saying to him, hey, Junior, um, you know that Australian kid that beat you the last couple of weeks? Um, he's looking for a doubles partner. No way. And, and the phone went dead kind of automatically. And I thought, oh, well, yeah, he said, you know, to hell with that, you know, no, no chance. And in fact, the response was, he'll let you know in an hour whether he thinks it's a good idea. Which, or did John call you and say, you know, hey, man. No, he, he, he didn't, but I was in the locker room uh, at UCLA. I just had finished my singles match. Came out of the shower, so I'm, I'm stark naked, toweling off. He walks in with his bag and rackets over his shoulder, had reflector shades on, and he walked up, and as he's getting closer to me, he's just like, like nodding his head, and I'm thinking, oh, like, oh my God, I'm... <laughs> is he shouting at me or something? But he, it was like literally nose to nose and I'm trying to cover myself with the towel as well. And yeah. he just came up and, and just said, you think you're good enough to play doubles with me now just because you've you beat me in singles? You think you can handle playing doubles? 
and again, I'm, I just try to cover my parts, you know, like, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, came out of my mouth and, and he said, we'll see about it. Dropped, dropped his bag and went out and I was like, oh no, what have I got myself into? And then what? We played and I played horrible for the first set, but he actually nudged me in the ribs after we lost the first set and said, you're too good a player. You're, I know you're nervous. I know playing with me, it's a big, you know, task. Uh, I think you're a great guy and just breathe, relax, you'll be fine. To me, that was like a golden, he couldn't have said anything more apt for me at the time. And then I started talking, I hadn't uttered a word to him for a set because I was so in- Terrified. Te yeah, like I was stunned. Um, but then it just, that opened the door and Look, we, we played, we won that tournament. When you we, did. When we won the- You won LA, the tournament. We won the LA tournament. And what, <laughs> That's and the, and the next week was a stop in San Francisco. And I had asked him to play that week as well, but he didn't want to give me the answer. When we won the LA tournament and shook hands, you know, as a pair, you shake hands before you shake your yeah. opponent's head. He shook hands with me and he said, you've won yourself a gig next week. <laughs> so I was like, yes, you know, I'm jumping up and down. Uh, shook hands, I'm like, what? Right. Um, and we won the next tournament as well. You know, it's funny, I always just thought you were needling Todd when you said that the best doubles partner you ever had was John McEnroe. Um, but is it true what you were saying? Is he the best doubles player there ever was? Is he, or at the very least in that, in that moment? So look, that comment, and I, and I still stand by it, um, it wasn't in any way to needle, uh, yeah. pull down. Todd is an incredible champion incredible. On, the, on the doubles court. The Woodies were, we, sh we shone strongly and brightly um, through the decade together. Uh, McEnroe to me just, he didn't have weaknesses uh, on the doubles court. Um, He's that good at doubles. He, he just, he, his game set up so, I mean, I just, like, I'm glad I never had to play him in doubles. I did it on the singles court against him, but the doubles court, I don't, I, I would have been uh, way out of my depth, I believe. So I believe individually, individually, John McEnroe is still the best doubles player that I have seen. Um, but that's not to take anything away from, say, Todd. I think, you know. No, no, of course. Uh, I don't mean that. I just yeah, remembered that I know, you always I, quoted I, I as saying that McEnroe is the best. I, I, and I, you know, probably after, uh, you know, maybe didn't realize what effect that would have. You know, I know Todd, it, he, he seemed to be agitated. Hopefully he's over it now. Um, I mean, look, he, he wrote, yeah. ended up writing a tennis book that, that he was the greatest doubles player in the game, so. Oh, I didn't know that. Wait, so hold on a second. So, so, um, and did you, you and Mac won your, it was your first slam. Yeah, so we won LA and San Francisco together. And then uh, the following season we played, uh, we ended up playing the US Open together and we, and we won that. So that was my first slam and. And were you, um, did he basically teach you how to play doubles? Would that be fair to say? He opened my eyes entirely. I think when you walk onto the court and you have those introductions by the MC, Mark Woodford's won two of these and, and one small tournament here and, and a ranking of whatever it was. Yeah. And then they talked about the volume of McEnroe's doubles career without mentioning his singles career. Right. It's like, uh, you, you, uh, what? And you kind of think of like what it could be. Yeah, and 
I, I had seen him play a doubles match years before that in uh, Rotterdam at a tournament. He played two other Australians. And Australians generally are always renowned for their doubles. 100%. Right? So he played, he and Fleming played against two Australian players. I sat there and watched, and it was six love, four love, before McEnroe made one unforced error. And to me, it was, that's how it's supposed to be done. Like, it was a question, that that's the level you have to reach. So I... Uh, overwhelmed that I got to be stand beside him, that I had my 15 minutes with him, yeah. but I learned a whole lot. He taught me so much, and that was able to transfer over to playing partnering Todd. Now, but 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 you listen. You were top 20. You got to top 20 in the world in singles. Yep. Todd. Semi the Wimbledon. Both, both of us, semis of the Grand Slam. Yeah. yeah, and we both reached no, uh, 19 was our highest singles ranking. How? Um, and, and so, so let's, let's let's just go to it. So you, when when did you and Todd get together? And you guys won. You won six Wimbledons, man. Yeah, yeah. But when we, did you guys get together? Shortly. Thanks, thanks to McEnroe, basically, he he sat me down in Cincinnati. Um, and he, he, he was using doubles as a way to get back into the game at the time. He'd had a sabbatical for six months and, you know, to play, he didn't like practicing. Right. He used doubles matches as a way to practice. I guess that had over a year, he was back to playing top flight singles and he sat me down and said, Woody, I think, you know, it's, it's um, inappropriate for you to be just waiting for me to play doubles. You are a great player. You're going to be a great player, but I think Find I would encourage you to play with someone on a consistent basis instead of just part-time with me. Find a regular partner. And he listed an Australian, someone who's younger, someone who's a right-hander, someone who plays singles and doubles, someone who possibly you can build a rapport because you could have a long career. There is a niche in Australia at, the, at that time uh, John Fitzgerald was starting to kind of wind down. He was our uh, prominent doubles player at the time. Um, and he said, you guys, for Davis Cup, uh, that, uh, that's ahead, look for someone like that, uh, with that description. And to me, it just was like, ding, 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 Todd Woodbridge, Todd Woodbridge, Todd Woodbridge. I just went and asked him probably a couple of weeks later. Uh, he, I mean, we, he knew who I was. I knew he was. He was uh, one of the juniors coming up. And What's he, five years younger than you? Five years younger. At the time, I was working on my fitness uh, and, and some strength, so I had, was working with a physical trainer. He still had a coach, but he wanted to work on his physical fitness. I wanted to get back working with a coach. It was like a jigsaw. It just went together. And you guys shared your coach? Shared our coach and the, and the trainer. That was Greg Croc, is it? Uh, Ray Ruffles. Ray Ruffles, that's Ray right, Ruffles. right. And he's Ruff a famous... He's a, he's a famous... Australian coach. He, he, yep, he, he Ray Ruffles. He was the head of Institute of Sport. And so, remember when a short time ago I said he's I the guy who screwed you. I wasn't selected for <laughs> the Institute of Sport. Ruff was in charge of that, and and so we even to this day I saw him last week. We laugh about the time he said we all make mistakes. Right, it was an unforced error. I think what he says, you know, he said I just didn't think that you had the 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 potential at that time, and he said. But that doesn't mean to say you took it the right in a positive direction. It doesn't mean to say that your dream ends. You can just you can still follow a different path, which is what I did. 
Um, and then you and Todd basically became the greatest doubles team that there's ever been. Well, I don't know about greatest that's ever been. We, we, we Your number, dom- num- if the numbers don't lie, right? Well, or you guys have the best numbers? Well, the Bryans do now. Oh, right, right, so, right, right, right. So, right. You, you know, and, and look, Mike and sorry, Bob. Sorry, uh, sorry about that. <laughs> that, was a, they, that was a mess. They're the winningest team. <laughs> they have 100 plus titles to their name. But, and look, it's not to, to try to dissect it, who's better than that. I, I think it's wonderful to be considered as one of the better doubles players or, and team. I think there are, are phenomenal teams in generations before, the same as Mike and Bob. The only difference though is tennis has changed now because we have devoted double specialists and we have devoted singles players. Todd and I were probably one of the last kind that combined singles and doubles. 100%. Yeah. And then, you know, McEnroe Fleming also, you got to give them a shout Again, out. They there, were, are, there are so many Australian so, teams yeah, as well yeah. that, that, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, Davis and Pete. It wasn't a goal for us for Todd and I to be, yes, we strove to be, our our drive was to be the best at the time. And once you get to a certain level, you kind of, you're aware that, okay, you're you're setting a very high benchmark. And yes, you play for a piece of history, but I don't think we we really wanted to say, we've got to be the best ever. We're actually over the moon to be in in a group maybe that would be considered as some of the best out there. Let me ask you this. How did your doubles success impact your singles? Um, do you think that it affected it adversely or it affected it, or your career would have been your career no yeah. matter how you did it? We, we grew up in Australia. That, that was the philosophy, you know, to be a tennis player. And, and, and a tennis player meant you, you committed to the disciplines of at Grand Slam level. So singles, doubles, and mixed. Um, the doubles greatly affected it in a positive way, my singles, because it provided the, the, the confidence, the, the, the uh, belief that I could achieve. If I could do it on the doubles court, it's going to translate onto the singles court. Did it? Uh, it, it did, obviously I wasn't, you know, in the top 10 or, you know, reached number one, but I had my moments on the singles court uh, uh, with tournament wins and beating number one ranked players. but. Probably maybe on two hands, amount of times that it might have affected it in a negative way, that just the fatigue build up and the, the matches. Um. Yeah, how often did you get on the court and you're like, shoot, the doubles just wiped me out, I'm, I'm out of business? That's where we operated uh, and what I think is the Woodies is that we were a combination and a team and we helped each other out in that respect. You tell that, each other, listen man, I'm, I am wiped. Honestly. You, yeah. gotta, you gotta run the show. Communicate, honestly, out there saying, hey, I'm really buggered today or in this match and Todd would step up and when he had the opportunity to, to uh, excel in the singles that particular week, he would you know, let, let say it to me and then I would try to compensate for him. and. That was just a, that's just how we operated. Did you guys, either of you, ever once pull out of doubles in an effort to stay fresh for singles? The way the way that that would happen from time to time. You know, you'd hear about, you know, Stephanie Groff right. would like drop out of, she no. would just default. No, no, I, I mean, I'm, I'm even trying, I'm, I'm trying to think, but so I don't, if it did, it might have only happened once or twice, but I can't even think of that time. Um, yeah, and, uh, the year, and, the, and the year that Todd semi Wimbledon, you guys won 
you guys won the doubles. Yeah. That's inc- so Todd Todd made a lot of money that tournament, boy. He, he was he was ecstatic. I remember I was there for that, right. by the way. I think I might have even done his rackets the, for that. He the, was that week. He was over he was pumped up. Oh look, he was he was seeing the ball like a balloon and that and that's what made Was that ninety seven, ninety eight? Ninety seven. Ninety seven. Yeah. And I and I waved my flag here because I felt I felt like that I got the ball rolling for Australians because in 96 was my turn of reaching the semi-finals uh, of uh, the, the slam there. Do you lose to Sampras too? I lost to Becker, Becker in the semis. I won the mixed at the same time. So I was keeping my form and staying relaxed by, Todd and I lost first round of doubles that year actually, <laughs> but I won the mixed. But it created a belief of, heck, Woody's, Woody's been able to do that. I mean, so the next slam, which I believe it was the uh, French Open, and I think it was Rafter when it made the semis. Um, That's right. The he Wimbledon was, I think, Jason Stoltenberg made the semis. The US Open, Rafter again in the semis. And then the following year, Todd reached the semis. So it opened the door of this, again, you know, I said about we operated in, in the men's, there were six or seven of us that helped push each other to to achieve great things and um, so yeah it was a it was a phenomenal week that I had at the Australian Open and for Todd of course it's the mecca of tennis isn't it Wimbledon I mean that's the place to be doing it at oh man now you guys are just in a fight what's the story man you got I mean yeah I know listen I'm gonna uh, preface it by saying like you're Todd is a fire he's a fiery guy Um, and when you were playing um, it seemed like was you had to ice. manage I, him. I, I yeah, was the one yeah. a little older, had some experience, could could offer you, you know some comfort to let's let's try to uh, just stoically head down and and keep keep going forward. But there are times we needed that that firecracker there to come on, get going, and and that's what he provided to our team. So, um, but yeah, the moment it's a uh, we're not necessarily on the same wavelength. He is uh, working full-time in Australia. Doesn't always, uh, there, there aren't, I cherish the moments as as a team, uh, the Woodies. I think he's, look, he's doing stuff on his own uh, back, back in Australia, but I think there's a bit to do with also the Davis Cup. He wasn't happy to see those changes uh, implemented where I believe those changes were necessary so that that adds to a bit of the non-communication level that we're at you guys might need to uh have a couple pitches of sangria a couple of beers lock in, uh, yeah lock in a room I, somewhere I would, I would i would love that uh to, todd to, woodbridge to man go, go lock in for a, go lock in for a few pints and figure this out you guys had too much great success we we and and look we still play what what it, what's hard for me, Craig, at the moment is I, you know, we still both play the Legends events and, you know, to go to these events and we're not playing together, I, I just, I don't get it. Yeah, you gotta figure this out. Yeah. We gotta figure this out, everybody. Now, um, I have a great memory of Agassi. I just remember Andre saying that the only slice backhand better than <laughs> Todd's was yours or vice versa. And then I think, I think that then there's, I actually think that the conversation turned to Steffi's slice back in. <laughs> <laughs> um, who had, you know, who taught you guys how to knife that slice and you know what, the quality of that backhand was something special. 
why both of us used our backhand slice incredibly well. It was, we used it as a weapon, right? Not, I think these days people use it as a bit of a defense or a, an out. For us, we used it as a way of actually getting to the net. It, 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 uh, it helped us and look, you, you could jerk guys around from who were five feet behind the baseline. You could bring them into the court. We, from I think playing on the faster surfaces on grass, it's, it's a part of your repertoire in Australia. Everyone needs a backhand slice. And, and look, you've got great teachers like Ken Rosewall, Tony Roach, uh, you know, that era all had a backhand slice that was perfection. So you say about Agassi talking with Steffi Graf, we, we would quite often, when we would go out to play our finals in the slams and doubles, quite often Steffi was out there playing because the men's doubles followed the women's singles. Yeah. So we would be sitting there going, isn't that great to watch, to see this backhand slice of Steffi? Uh, well, we talked to Heinz Kunhardt about it, and he said that, you know, from the time they started to the time that she started winning all the, you know, the 12 slams when he was with her, that he got her to get it lower and even knife it even more. Yep. And that, yep. that, that, that basically, it just set up for the forehand. It's missing in our sport today. Seems like there's a lot of backhand slicing going on, but it's more of, like you said, uh, it's not offensive, right? It's more of a, um, it's a bailout. Yeah, when they're at end range and they're, they're, they're the only way, even the slice forehand, it's, it's when it's, they can't get the, over the top of the ball, they're, they're doing this squash-like forehand and, and uh, not necessarily as, as effective as what I still to this day, if I'm working with people, I encourage them to still develop and work on a backhand slice. More variety. Yeah, yeah. We have to touch it. Uh, the string in your racket, this went way under the radar. It never got <laughs> spoken about, but you play with like hard plastic square at one time. It was square at one time. At one time, though, you yeah. had square, yeah. hard plastic, uh, probably like 10 gauge. With 1.6 millimeter. So I, don't, I can't remember what gauge. He had did like the this crazy thick string yeah. in a racket that had way less strings in it. If you went down, was, if you went down to the, the, the cruise terminals, they cruise used ships. It, cruise ships. That's what they tied it up at the dock with. <laughs> it was that thick. It was that thick. Yeah. And what's the story behind that? My first coach, Barry Phillips Moore, was. Uh, uh, in his time, the, uh, a bit of a racket technician. Uh, he was a he, racket guy. Racket guy, string, to try to develop spin. He always believed that spin was where tennis was going to move towards it, control on the slower surfaces. And he, in his time, has had developed the spaghetti strings, which ended up being banned in the sport because of the excessive amount of spin that it did create. Right. This was a very crude version of that very, so the, the pattern was basically 12 by 14. You had to have thicker string because when you space or you don't have that many strings in the frame, there was a lot of movement yeah, that the, would happen. Yeah. So you had to have the thicker string in order for the string to last, but it created extra spin. To me, again, I understood that as control. And when you're in tight moments, don't you want control? You had a, and you, you used it like that your whole entire career? I, when I first came over, I was using conventional rackets for my first trip, but I, when I had to learn to play on clay, which was so alien, I broke all of my rackets in frustration and I didn't have any more rackets to play. And Barry said, if you're gonna continue with me, you need some sticks to play with. Here, use this. And, all, and I had a very flat trajectory of forehand and backhand when I played, uh, growing up on hard courts of grass. 
on clay. Real classic. I had, I had to learn, how, yeah, very classic game. So this allowed me to hit with a higher trajectory um, and, and away we went. So I never, never moved away from it um, at, at all. After the first six months, I stuck with that pattern. If you ever have a chance, go on YouTube and you'll see what I were talking about. <laughs> this is the most unique string situation that I can recall um, in, 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 in memory. Uh, it was, and it, nobody ever really talked about it. It was a really kooky thing you had going on. Well, and, and players would, obviously through my success, players, uh, if I would practice with them, top players would pick it up and they'd look at it and they'd say, this is odd. They would then, you know, as tennis players always yeah. apt to do, you'd test the tension out. Yeah. But because of the thicker string, it provided a more dull sound. Yeah. And we are all adverse, I mean, not, not to adverse, we are all, um, connected to sound, the tension of your strings. So that, then they thought it was weird. They'd go onto the court and play with it. They thought it was brilliant. But because the sound and the looks of it were different from conventional, they were like, eh, I'm not gonna be playing with it. Let's move into our uh, fourth set. Yep. We call this the 10 ball scramble. This is not a deep dive. Okay. It's word associated, I'll say it. Yep. And then you say what comes into your mind. Okay. Favorite city? Hometown, Adelaide. Favorite tournament? Wimbledon. Favorite court? Clay. Favorite forehand? Wow. Favorite forehand. I think I would, I think I would go with Agassiz because it, it just created so much pain for me. Favorite backhand? Steffi Graf. Backhand slice. Favorite forehand volley? Uh, volleying for me was, yeah, you know, I, I loved watching Edberg volley. I thought that, I mean, wow. Amazing volleys. Yeah. yeah. Cashy and Cashy. Uh, I, I mean, those two, they were for me. Shout out to I, Pat Cash. Yeah, Great I, volleys. I wanted, to, I wanted to volley like them. His volleys are sick. Yep. Sick volley. And uh, favorite surf? Well, one that always gave me <laughs> that, and being left-handed as well. So it was like the comparison, why can't you serve like that? As I watched another ball whizzing past me, but Goran Ivanisevic, that was poetry in motion. Goran. Yeah. Not Pete. Pete was a bit more, you know, it just, I could hear it coming down at me. And, and I, look, I, I didn't have success at all against Pete. One time did I in 13 goes, but it, it seemed to just come down the court and it talked to you. Goran's, if you kind of the left-handedness, the wickedness of it, it just Goran. blew me. Goran, away. nice to hear from here, Goran. Um, Labor Cup. Labor Cup. Exhibition. Davis Cup. Pillar of our sport. Larry Ellison. Thank goodness he's in our sport. Nick Kyrgios. Talented, needs help. Prize money. Let's, let's get it down to the lower ranked players. The top are overpaid as it is. It needs to filter down to the lower ranked players. Appearance fees. Sometimes necessary. Transition tour. That's where it all begins. That's grassroots tennis. Moving into our fifth and final set. We call this the king of the court. If you were the king of tennis, um, how would you change it, how would you do it with one spin of the scepter? Um, Look, if I had that opportunity, deconstruct the calendar. Just just start with a, a blank 
sheet for 12 months, space out the four slams, put in Davis Cup. So that means maybe we wouldn't have as many Master 1000 tournaments. It would all kind of feed up, um, you know, to the very top. Um, you know, many of our guests have talked about the schedule. Yep. Give me something different than that. What's something that you would love to make a change on? Whilst I, I'm, I love the doubles uh, side of our sport, I would try to encourage uh, or have a ranking system that the top singles players actually had to, part of their ranking could be bolstered by playing doubles. So four slams, they have to play at least one of them. Um, mandate some doubles for man, the top guys. Mandate doubles for the top guys because that's being a tennis player. The, the, his, the historical aspect is not about being a singles player. It's not about being a doubles only guy. But I would try to encourage or create a system that you could benefit. The doubles players would have to go off and be playing some singles. And you know, to that point, um, somehow this Ellison group has gotten these top guys to play doubles here in their event. And that is a perfect example of why best it's so great. People love it. Tour. The best, strongest doubles, the highest cut is here. My man, uh, can't thank you enough. Great to see you. Uh, thank you very much. Have a great hey, week. It's great to see you again, yeah. yeah. You are released. Thanks, mate. Thank you to everyone for listening. If you want to help support Under Review, the Tennis Insiders podcast, and get some great perks along the way, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash underreviewtennis. We really appreciate it. Huge thank you to Mark Woodford. Thanks to Pam McClintock and Greg Kilday for the Palm Springs accommodations. We've been missing that amazing collection of porcelain Mao Tse tongues. Big thank you to our Patreon supporter, Jenny Townsend. We hope you enjoy the Slick Racket magazine signed by tennis great Martin Mulligan. His episode is coming up shortly. Thank you all for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review us. Tell your friends. We can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. We also love hearing from you. So if you have a topic you want explored or a person you want to hear from, please let us know. Our email is info at underreviewtennis.com. At UR with CS is our Twitter handle. Underreview Tennis is our Instagram and Facebook. Our producer is Scott Tuft, and our music is by Brian Senti. Jason Binnick did our mix. We will be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.